We are returning again to our series on the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we come to Luke chapter 21. Uh, It's printed as Luke chapter 12 in your bulletin. That was my oversight. Luke chapter 21. Uh, So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Chapter 21. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we uh, come to you this morning. We beg that you would send your spirit to understanding, uh, that you would give us softness to what you have to say to us, and Father, that you would produce uh, the fruit of righteousness and holiness in us through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As I was uh, driving to church this morning with my middle daughter and youngest, um, I asked the question of my middle daughter, Jaden. I said, why do we go to church? Such a dad question, isn't it? You know, (laughs) take these opportunities, you're just with your kids, and then you have to make some kind of like deal about it. But I said, why do we go to church? And she said, well, we, we go to church to worship God. I was like, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then she goes, and because you're the pastor. And uh, I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's true. And, uh, and it highlights something, which is uh, often there's more than one good reason for doing something, right? And uh, I bring that up because 
This morning, we come to a passage that has to do with judgment. And the question is, why, why do we talk about passages like this? And one answer is, because it was next. It's next in the Gospel of Luke, and so we're talking about it. And that is actually a very good answer, because we as a church believe that the Bible is God's speech to us. And that may, even though not everything in it is written directly to us, it's all written for us. And we need to listen. But there's another reason, and that is judgment is actually an important part of historic Christianity. If you go all the way back to the Apostles' Creed, uh, which has been one of the creeds that has endured throughout transitions across history, uh, across culture, across language, one of the things that Christians have always confessed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ His Son, who after being crucified and buried, was raised, ascended, and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And I want to propose to you something, that judgment is actually a really good thing. Evil won't win. Nothing will be left unaddressed. All things will be made right. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, he doesn't go around always talking about judgment explicitly, but judgment is like this watermark on all his teaching. It's there in the background. And one of the reasons is this, and this is so important for us, only where there is real judgment can there be real grace. And I would say that one of the reasons that the Christian church in America is so anemic is because we don't understand judgment and therefore our view of grace is very bland. Now here's the thing. Culturally speaking, we've decided that judgment is something that's a relic of the past, right? We don't like it, leave it behind. It's for those dumb people who lived long ago and, uh, and liked scary things like the judgment of God. But what's fascinating to me is how other big fears have replaced it. And uh, maybe you think this is a little bit silly, but uh, there's kind of a modern obsession with end-of-the-world scenarios, and you can see it in films. Something like over 100 American films since 2000 have been about these end-of-the-world scenarios. And you can go back a little earlier for some of you who are around in the 90s. Uh, there, were, there were movies like Armageddon and Deep Impact. Do you remember these? Where a meteor is coming to crash against the earth, right? And uh, it's doomsday for everybody, and it's only solved by the clever human ingenuity of a few, right? Uh, those things have, have not died down. They've picked up, and they've actually morphed. Now we're, we're not so much afraid about meteors coming and crashing against the earth. We're afraid of an outbreak of a plague, and there's several movies that clustered around that theme. And then now it seems like it's shifted to zombie apocalypses, okay? That's, that's what we're really afraid of. That's how the world's going to come to end, is we're going to be eaten by zombies, and uh, you might think, okay, that's just silly, that's just film, but it's speaking to something in the human condition that uh, is gnawing away at us from the inside. When you turn on the news, you know, it's all the dark stuff gets the headlines. And you hear catastrophizing over and over again. For those of you who are uh, growing up in the 70s, 80s, the nuclear arms race and the Cold War was such a big deal. Uh, now you hear people talk about Global, global warming and the melting of the ice caps and what that's going to do. 
Um, you, you hear about the big one is coming, and California is just going to, you know, like break off and go floating into the sea, right? And it's going to set off tsunamis and all sorts of stuff. Over and over again, there's doomsday prophets, right? Many of us don't take any of them seriously, but underneath is this sense that, like, how's it all going to end? And this is, this is what I want us to understand this morning. It's a very complicated passage. And uh, iron is going to clear up everything for you next week. So but I'm going to do my best. But on occasion, Jesus actually spoke words to prepare his disciples for the really big one. The judgment of God. And some of us are a bit embarrassed that Jesus talked like this because we're jaded and we're cynical. We just want to focus on the ethics of Jesus. But we're going to see that the ethics of Jesus are really tied to the eschatology of Jesus. The judgment of God, the coming of the kingdom of God. Others of us, we're obsessed with this stuff. We like cracking codes and deciphering riddles, right? For those of us who are embarrassed, you need to know Jesus was suspicious of end times teachers and warned against them, and we'll see that in this passage. For those who are obsessed, you need to hear that Jesus spoke soberly and for emotional stability and fortitude for his people. Now, you're going to have to permit me a bit of a longer wind-up into the text this morning. I'll try to move through my points a little more clearly. But we've been away from the Gospel of Luke for a long time, so you need to know where this story comes in the overall story of the Gospel of Luke. This is during the last week of Jesus' life. And we're actually going to stretch this all the way out through the season of Lent. And Jesus has been upsetting a lot of people. He entered Jerusalem with an entourage, causing some people to start hyperventilating. Like, what's happening here? Like, he's making a kingly claim for himself. He's going to be crushed by the Romans. Or, here it is, he's going to unleash, right, on our Roman oppressors. He walks into the temple, and he starts turning tables over, putting everybody on edge. And then he spends day after day returning to the temple, getting into squabbles, Uh, with the religious authorities, and they're kind of taking turns on him. And he's going on record saying, you're all getting it wrong. And then the last time we were in the Gospel of Luke, we saw that Jesus points out how a poor Jewish widow was actually giving more sacrificially to the temple than any of the the Jewish leaders were. And it's at this point that some people... Likely some of his disciples, and this is the beginning of our text, are marveling at the magnificence of the temple. And if it is his disciples, this is another example of their cluelessness, right? But they're looking around at this, the beauty of the temple. And it was really impressive. And they're like, would you take a look at this? I mean, pretty fantastic, right, Jesus? The rebuilding is coming along really well. And Jesus says, the whole thing's going to come tumbling down. Not going to last. Now, you and I don't get how unsettling these words must have been, but the temple was incredibly important to Jewish people living in the first century. It was part of their Jewish identity. They were God's people, and this was God's house, and this is where they would go to meet with him. And it had a history. After the Exodus, God had actually instructed the Israelites to build the tabernacle. It's like a temporary temple, a traveling temple. It was called the tent of meeting. It contained the ark of the covenant, had the 10 commandments within that. David wanted to build 
a more permanent house for God. But it was Solomon who actually did it. And yet that temple was destroyed in judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. Nehemiah steps in and he's leading efforts to rebuild the temple. But when it's finished, it's like kid stuff in comparison. When we read about this in the prophets, it says the elders weeped when they saw the finished project. They're like, this is nothing like the glory of what was before. And then along comes Herod the Great, appointed by Caesar to be the king of the Jews, even though he wasn't a Jew. And he wanted to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people, but he also wanted to be a stud, right? So he started the rebuilding project again, and he poured all kinds of time and money into it. And it was huge, and it was magnificent. And some people could, said it could hold up to 400,000 people. Think about how many football stadiums that is. This thing was magnificent. But Jesus isn't a fan. Not only had the temple experienced mission drift, instead of being a house of prayer for all nations, it become a den of robbers, he said, and that was the act of cleansing the temple. Not only that, but the temple is being displaced in God's purposes because Messiah has arrived. Jesus, as we know from other parts of the Gospels, is the new temple, the meeting place with God where you go to experience him. And Jesus is the place you go if you want to be reconciled with him. It's time is almost up, is what Jesus is saying. Not going to last. And you need to know the end of the temple would have felt like the end of the world to a first century Jew. And so these people want to know, when will these things happen? When will it take place? And what will be the signs? Right? When and what? When will this happen? What will be the signs? And Jesus actually doesn't answer their question immediately. He talks generally in verses 8 through 11 about a pattern of history. He gets a little more specific about something right on the horizon in verses 12 through 19. But he doesn't get directly to their question until verses 20 through 24. And then he adds a little more on top in verses 25 through 28. Some say Jesus is speaking only about the coming destruction of the temple. And others say, no, 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 he's speaking only about the end of the world. But the truth is he's speaking about both. One establishes a pattern for the other. One pictures the other. It's a foreshadowing or sometimes called a type. But before he gets to all this, he has some words for his disciples and for us. And this is what I want you to focus in on this morning. Jesus wasn't so much dishing out info for us to make charts and graphs about the end times. He's giving instruction for all his followers about how to live in the meantime, between his first and his second coming. And this is why this is so important. It's not because Jesus wants to take us to take out decoder devices and read the news, drawing connections between political events and drawing conclusions about where we are in the timetable. Jesus actually specifically denies but that's what he means. It's important because Jesus tells us what life will be like in the time in between. His first coming is coming again. And he wants us to be prepared. He wants us to live in light of the judgment. Now, when um, we were pregnant with our first child, I guess I should say my wife was pregnant with our first child. Uh, we, got, we got all kinds of books given to us. You know, everybody wants to give their advice about like, you know, oh, you should try this, you should do that, you know. Um, but there was one book that was actually helpful that, um, yeah, sorry for those of you who might have been giving me those. Well, you don't know what na- the name of the book is yet, but the name of the book was What to Expect When You're Expecting, which is a great title. 
And it was simply one of those things that as you experienced pregnancy and as you got to the place of delivery, right, you were able to say, oh, like, they told us beforehand. Like, this is what it would be like. And in a sense, Jesus has given you a what to expect when you're expecting kind of talk. The world is pregnant with the kingdom of God. And you need to expect labor pains. Matthew actually uses that very image in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, which is a parallel to this passage. So thematically, we need to notice that Jesus tells us there's going to be lies, there's going to be tears, there's going to be wars, there's going to be chaos, there's going to be loss, there's going to be heartache, but ultimately, there will be victory. And the stuff that Jesus mentions here is like a foreshadowing of the experience of the early church is recorded in the book of Acts. Earthquakes and famines and appearances before kings and governors and persecution and witness. But it's also the stuff of all of human history. And Jesus gives some specific commands to his disciples. Don't be tricked, verse 8. Don't be afraid, verse 9. Don't worry about what you're going to say, verse 14. Don't panic. Don't come unglued. And then finally, straighten up and raise your head. Your redemption is drawing near. In many ways... This whole passage, as ominous as it may sound, is an exposition of hope. And hope is different than optimism. Hope can fully face the darkness and not be undone by it. So Jesus is preparing his disciples and all his followers for a long-distance run. He's not trying to give them secret trivia about the end times. He's trying to equip them for endurance and for missionary resolve. And all of this in the normal chaos of what we call history. So here's the first thing I want us to see. You and I are going to need discernment. You know what Jesus' first warning is? It's don't be duped. He says, watch out. Don't be led astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. And this is why this is important. There's a boatload of spiritual frauds out there. Don't listen to them. You actually need a godly cynicism as opposed to an ungodly gullibility. Spiritual hucksters love to point out the signs of the end. And Jesus itemizes these things as non-signs. Okay? He says, when you hear of wars and upheavals, don't get in a panic. Verse 9. Nations are going to rise up against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms. Verse 10. Earthquakes and famines and plagues are going to come. Verse 11. But these national and international conflicts and these natural disasters are not signs of the end. They're the stuff of the present evil age. False teachers love to seductively draw connections between political events and end times prophecies. And Jesus says, don't fall for it. I want you to maintain your theological sanity. False prophets want to interpret catastrophes as omens and proclaiming the time is at hand. And he says, watch out for them. You know, the Apostle Paul had to deal with something similar in 2 Thessalonians 2. And he basically says, don't get all shaken up by that. Don't be tricked. You need discernment. And then there's another command tucked away in here that is no less important. Don't be terrified. Verse 9. However crazy and chaotic things get, however dark and depressing things go, don't think that these are signs that the end of the world is right there. And don't think that the world is out of control. It remains in the grips of a sovereign, ordering will. These things must take place, Jesus says 
in verse 9. Look, how do, how do we sum up what Jesus is, is doing for us here? You know what he's doing? He's saying, you need to be the non-anxious presence in the world. The world is overrun with anxiety right now. We're getting worked up about anything and everything. There is so much fear and doom and gloom, and we can recognize it, right? But the heart of a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is to be steadfast and stable and confident in the sovereignty of God. There's always going to be spiritual troubles, false teachers and their tricks. And there's always going to be social and political troubles, right? Wars and disasters. These characterize the meantime before the end time. And healthy fear is fine, but obsessive, irrational, overwhelming fear is not. That kind of fear paralyzes the people of God. And there are many vendors of doom out there ready to sell us some anxiety and terror. These things must take place, Jesus says. Above all chaos reigns a divine plan. And it can, you, know, you can almost summarize it no better than the children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. The best theology is often learned from the songs that we sing to children. On top of the spiritual disorders, frauds and hucksters don't be tricked, and political disorders, nations warring against nations, kingdoms battling kingdoms, don't be terrified. There's also the ecological disorders, earthquakes, famines, and plagues, don't come unglued, Jesus says. These are labor pains. There is real agony, but there is new life ahead. And these are just the tremors, the sign of a new age. Be discerning. And here's the second thing Jesus says. You're going to need courage and perseverance. You notice in verse 12, he says these words to his disciples, but also for us. He says, before these things, right, this whole experience of life, you need to know something in particular, something in the immediate future. You're going to face conflict and persecution. And this becomes a subject from verse 12 all the way to verse 19. He says, you're going to be hauled off the synagogues and prisons. You're going to be called in before kings and governors. And all of this for my name's sake, or the way some translations put it, on account of my name, verse 12. He'll even go on to say that close friends and relatives, even parents and siblings, will deliver you over. You will be hated for my name's sake. Now, this specifically applies first to Jesus' first followers. And again, the record of, uh, of the early church in the book of Acts bears this out. This is exactly what happened. The story of Peter, the story of Stephen, the story of James, the story of Paul. And then after the New Testament era, you can read it about Ignatius of Antioch or Polycarp or Justin Martyr or Origen, because this is a word for all of Jesus' followers. This is the kind of thing that can happen over and over again throughout history. It has and it does. It's more obvious in our day in the eastern part of the world. It's more invisible in the west. But what often simmers beneath the surface for a long while can burst forth at any particular moment. Jesus is brutally honest with his people. There is trouble ahead, and it is because you associate with my name. Don't be surprised. You will be the object of derision, perhaps, or scorn, or hatred, or dismissal, and sometimes even violent persecution. 
You can read about this in the history uh, over and over and over again. It's filled with examples. And it's, it's interesting. You go all the way back to the second century, around 180 AD. There was this um, hotshot uh, uh, skeptic of Christianity named Celsus. And uh, he went on a little rant about Christians uh, in his day. And he said, their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women and children. These are the only ones whom they managed to turn into believers. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) I guess it happens now, right? In various ways in our society, in brutal ways in other parts of the world. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, Jesus says. You need courage and perseverance. And I want you to note specifically the connection between on account of my name and this experience, right? It's the loss of street cred. No street cred. The name of Jesus, right? We think Jesus, sweet Jesus, meek and mild, like we're just going to tell the sweet Jesus story, right? People are going to love it, right? Well, at different times, in different periods, and in different ways, the name of Jesus is actually associated with that which is harmful to public welfare. And only the public derision of those associated with his name will satisfy the public moral sensibilities. And it's in the experience of the world's hatred that many become dropouts of the Christian faith. And it's often, it's often described this way, I'm letting loose from this grand harmful lie. She says, don't be surprised when it goes this way. I told you beforehand. But right in the middle of these dark words, Jesus tucks a whole lot of encouragement. He says, there's actually going to be great opportunity here for you to bear witness Verse 13. And I love how he puts this. He basically says, you're going to have a captive audience. And you'll be able to speak of a crucified and risen Lord. That happens in Acts over and over again. Because Jesus is essentially saying, they're going to platform you even when they, don't, when, they, when they don't mean to. And he promises to provide. He says, I'm going to give you a mouth and a wisdom. It's like an emergency ration for needy saints in these situations. And he's, it, it, I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this. Uh, in the message. He says, go ahead and make up your mind not to worry about this too much right now. Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you find the words to say. And this too has happened again and again and again throughout history. And even if things turn out for the worst, Jesus promises to protect and preserve. Do you notice verse 19? Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Many people have misunderstood this verse as if Jesus were saying, no harm will ever, ever come to you. And then they're really disappointed when it does. But that can't be what Jesus meant. That wouldn't make any sense because in verse 16, he says, some of you, they will put to death. Okay. Jesus isn't talking nonsense. He's being deliberately paradoxical as he does over and over again. If you want to find your life, you got to lose it. If you want to gain your life, right, you got to (laughs) die. I mean, This is how Jesus talks a lot. And what he's saying is, they can't touch you. And what he means is, they can't take one hair follicle's worth of what is most important about you, away from you. That you're mine and that you belong to my eternal kingdom. Martin Luther sang about this in A Mighty Fortress is is Our God. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. These are great assurances for God's people under duress. 
He's relieving their anxieties even as he's being brutally honest about what might await. And he's encouraging his disciples to faithfully testify before all nations and in every circumstance, no matter how bad it gets. And saying God's purposes will be worked out even in the worst, even in the midst of persecution. Because that's what he does. He makes something out of nothing. So, so far, Jesus has cautioned two things. Don't get sidetracked, right, by tricksters and omens. Be discerning. And don't be surprised if you find yourself suffering. Have courage and perseverance. And then he finally, in verse 20, begins to get at the nub of their question about the temple. And he says, you're going to need wisdom for this. If you're looking for a sign that all this is going to happen, it'll be when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. Then you will know the desolation is near. And Jesus says, here's your opportunity to literally get out of town if you're in it and to stay out if you're not. Because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. You know what that means? It's a judgment. The curses of Israel's covenant breaking are coming home to roost. They were promised in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. And we might add, it's coming home to roost again. It's the story of Israel. And it's why Jesus had to come. But this is kind of a climactic moment as the temple is being displaced in God's purposes, giving way to something greater. But he says it's going to be distressing. The last thing you want to be is pregnant or nursing a child when you got to hightail it out of town, which shows the compassion of Jesus. My heart goes out to these people. Jesus is thinking of the most vulnerable members of society. And you know what? These words that Jesus said, these actually happened in 70 AD. The Romans showed up and they decimated Jerusalem. It had been building for years, but a few days before Passover began a five-month assault on the town and they burned the temple to the ground. The ancient historian Josephus actually talks about this in his book, The Jewish War. And according to early church historian Eusebius, many Christians fled to nearby Pella, where they escaped the awful siege. And in many ways, it's not unlike the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, when God told him, flee for your life, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the valley. And of course, Lot didn't listen. And here's a little side note for you. Fleeing persecution is sometimes the right thing to do, okay? In in certain circumstances, it's not sub-Christian or cowardly. Sometimes it's even commanded. There are times to stay and there are times to flee. And Jesus has been telling his disciples about the judgment coming on Jerusalem. Chapter 19, verses 33 through 44, he did it with tears. And he said, you're going the wrong way. Disaster awaits. You need to turn and take on the mantle of my kingdom. Jesus' warning here is very similar to many Old Testament texts where Israel is called to flee Babylon because of the coming judgment on her. But here Jesus is calling them to flee Jerusalem, the city of God. Because God's kingdom has come in Jesus. God's people have rejected God's king. God's promised judgment falls. And yet, there's still great hope. Because the scene shifts once again, verse 25, from the destruction of Jerusalem to a cosmic and universal end of history. How do we know that? Because he speaks of the coming of the Son of Man in a cloud with power and great glory. Now look, this, this language in this section is, uh, 
is remarkably similar to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel is a book that includes a lot of visions and prophecies and things like that. And they're all about the nations rising up and they're depicted as beasts, right? Or, or, or being displaced, displacing one another. But there's this concentrated focus on God's answer, his kingdom that overcomes the kingdoms of this world. And in Daniel 7, listen to how this is, this is read. This is verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And we learn from Daniel 7 that this son of man is a human figure in contrast to the vicious beasts that represent the nations, lions, leopards, all that stuff. It's a divine figure. All nations, languages, people are going to worship and serve him. And it's a royal figure, right? A kingdom is given to him and he will rule. And you know what Jesus's favorite way of referring to himself in the gospels is? Son of man. This is Jesus's great claim. I'm the one. And there will be signs of my return, right? The language is apocalyptic, Sun and moon and stars. And man, I wish I had time to get into all this. But these natural disturbances, this roaring of the sea and the waves, the psychological dread that comes on the world as it comes unglued, right? He's using the language of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Haggai and Zechariah, which describes God's judgment. He says, this is the big one. This is the cosmic shaking. This is not just the labor pains. These are the contractions. And the new world is coming to birth. And guess what? No one's going to yawn at this, and no one will miss it. It will be dramatic, and it will be clear. As Revelation puts it in chapter 1, verse 7, every eye will see him. He's not coming in secret. You know, this vision of the future protects the church from all other visions, which is to say it protects us from false hopes and false kingdoms. This is how it ends with the coming of the Son of Man. To put right all that is wrong in the world. And listen up. Like this is, I, 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 don't wanna, I don't know how to emphasize this anymore. But many of us want the kingdom without the king. With the blessings, with the peace, with the joy, with the satisfaction. But we don't really care about Jesus. And you can't have the kingdom without the king. You've got to be right with him. Messiah first comes in weakness and vulnerability. But when he returns, it will be with great power, and glory. This is the real show. This is the big spectacular. This is the great display of God's power and goodness to which we are to direct our longings. And as Frederick Dale Bruner put it, a hope that does not have Christ coming at its center is no Christian hope at all. But notice what Jesus says to his disciples after announcing these words. Straighten up and lift your head. Don't be afraid. Your redemption is drawing near. It's that full and final salvation. The eternal, everlasting peace of his kingdom is finally arriving. And this tells us something that's really central to how we live all of our lives, is what is your great hope? Redemption is our great hope. Not human ingenuity saving us from the next 
natural disaster that's in line or the zombie apocalypse or whatever. It is redemption. God undoing the effects of sin. And it's God's ingenuity to do it. This hope is different than optimism. Optimism is like, ah, like, you know, just look on the bright side, right? But this is a hope that stares darkness right in the eye. And it is a hope that is secure because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is its guarantee. You know, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus has died and been raised, uh, he comes alongside these two dudes who are walking on a road to Emmaus. And uh, they're, they're, they're pretty wigged out, right? They're, they're, they're mourning and grieving the death of the one that they thought was Messiah. And Jesus comes up and says, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> and they're like, have you not heard? And they tell the story of Jesus and his uh, horrible end. And they say these words, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And Jesus says, oh, f- oh how foolish and slow of heart you are to not believe all that the prophets have spoken. That the Christ had to come and suffer and die and be raised again in order to redeem. See, he was the one to redeem Israel and the world, just not how they thought. He came to take judgment on his shoulders instead of dishing it out. And that sets up the meantime between his first coming and his coming again. When he comes again, right, it's going to be to put everything right. And how you have responded to him and relate to him will determine your end. That's what Jesus says. But you need to know that Jesus' words in this passage are meant to be heard as gospel. Not a puzzle to be put together by prophecy teachers. Jesus is saying, it's the long game, but I'm coming. But the time is now to respond to me. The time is always near because there's nothing that really stands in the way of my return anymore. But the time is always unknown. So live with urgency, live with expectancy and readiness. But above all, live with hope. Your redemption is drawing near. Iron's going to, like I said, fix all this next week and tease it out. But I just want to leave you with two things. One is, what are Christians to be busy with? During the meantime, you know what to be busy with? The Great Commission and the Great Commandment. That we are called to be people who go out and bear witness to Jesus and his kingdom as the great hope of the world. And that involves us learning to be people who love God and love our neighbor as ourself. And the second thing is this, how long, oh Lord? How long? It's 2,000 years. And it's interesting because even in the, the writings of the New Testament, you get this question engaged a little bit. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter engages it, you know? He's like, all right, we're right here. We're at the end, but when is the end, you know? And what he says is uh, something really remarkable. He says the delay doesn't falsify the hope. The delay has a purpose, and that is that God might draw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to repentance. And guess who's going to use to do that? His people. As we learn to be discerning, right, and not get tripped up or tricked out, right, as we learn to have courage and perseverance, and as we learn to fix our hope on the great hope, which is redemption, that Jesus came and inaugurated 
in his death and his resurrection from the dead and promises to fully manifest in his coming again. That's why our church every Sunday proclaims these words in our liturgy. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's everything we need for the meantime. Let's pray together. God, we <clears throat> come to you this morning and um, Lord, we bring uh, our tattered hearts uh, that, Lord, are filled with just so many different things and pulled in so many different directions and uh, sometimes just feel like just a huge mess. Um, Lord, we're, we're doubters. Um, we're rebels. Uh, Lord, we're sad. We're sorrowful. Um, we're sometimes bored, disinterested. Um, but Lord, we pray that you by your spirit, would cause your word to land in our hearts that we would hear your plea to us uh, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, uh, to find our hope wrapped up in him, in his life, death, and his resurrection from the dead, and in his coming again. And this would begin to shape our lives into a people uh, who are discerning and have courage and perseverance and lift up our heads and our hearts because our redemption is, is drawing near. Lord, would you do that for us now, whether that's for the first time in our lives or for the millionth time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.